If you haven't heard of CDR, it stands for Corporate Digital Responsibility. And I guess we all appreciate that that's going to become more and more important as we're all leading more and more of our lives in the digital world. But what is CDR going to mean for digital payments? I'm really intrigued to find that out from the founder of CorporateDigitalResponsibility.net and the host of the Digital Responsibility podcast, Rob Price, who's joining us for this episode of Navigating Digital Payments. Welcome to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline, bringing you the latest innovations, trends and predictions about the future of payments. Hello and welcome to this episode of Navigating Digital Payments. I'm David Daly. I look after the Worldline Discovery Hub and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rob Price, who is the director of Alchemy Digital and also the founder of Corporate Digital Responsibility and world-renowned podcaster on the topic of digital responsibility. Rob, welcome to the podcast. David, it's a delight to be here. Um, and, and how can I follow that intro other than to challenge the world-renowned bit? But hey, uh, it's, it's nice to hear. Later, I really want to come on to this topic of how CDR is going to impact payments. But first, I thought it'd be good uh, to understand a little bit more about what CDR really is. I guess many people have probably heard of CSR, so Corporate Social Responsibility, Um but can you share a little bit about what made you passionate about corporate digital responsibility and why you saw a need to be raising awareness in, in that space? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And in a sense, the story goes back to the days before ever thinking about a term called corporate digital responsibility. But we'll come back to that uh, as the story develops. So, um, as, as you know, my background was... Um, working in large global organizations around big-scale digital transformation. Um, and, and and around 2016, I'd started asking the question around the, the, the digital divide and, and it, it, it being growing rather than narrowing. People assumed that the digital divide was all about broadband connectivity, but we talked about it in the context of the pace of change of technology, always kind of new things coming along. How did individuals, how did organizations harness that to create good? Um, and we we devised, a, we as in a number of us across both Atos and Worldline at the time, uh, devised a work stream looking at uh, what we termed digital society. Now, as, as you know, that, that culminated in asking the question of what do organisations need to do differently, what's their corporate responsibility, but driven from a digital perspective. And, and I think in the work and the conversations that I've had subsequently over the years, um, yes, there's a relationship with CSR. And, and certainly, if we kind of talk about the most recent definition that was launched last year, then we used the um, three circles of economic, societal, and environmental, uh, but with a digital lens. To, to kind of think about how we articulate it. So CDR, uh, most simply put, is, is appropriate and ethical use of technologies and data to create positive outcomes uh, for uh, individuals and society and the planet as a whole. Um, I think when we kind of started talking about it, 2016-17, uh, we didn't particularly focus on the environmental piece. It was more around uh, consumer and thinking about 
um, adoption and impact of the digital technologies, but other people who've defined it in the years since have kind of very much focused also on the environmental piece, which which has been subsequently wrapped into the definition. But but for me, I guess dates back to 2016. No surprise in terms of why we started talking about it then. Uh, with the focus around uh, Brexit in the UK or or Trump in the US and the Cambridge Analytica and numerous other things that were happening at that time. Uh, but it was kind of very much thinking about how do we make sure that organisations are thinking more about the positive impact that they can make through the utilisation of those technologies. And it's interesting, isn't it, to think back to that time because it was it was probably the, the start of people realising that maybe digital technology wasn't universally or, or, or automatically a good thing. Do, do you, so I think up until that point, I'm not sure people had really reflected so much on that. But do you know, David, I mean, the amount of time... I used to kind of speak at conferences um, in 2016-17 around these early thoughts. And I used to do this thing where get everyone standing up and, 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 and I, draw a, I literally drew a kind of big line on a wall at one point, dystopian utopian how do you feel about the impact that technology is having on people's lives and everyone went to the utopian end of the scale literally i mean i, I couldn't believe it just how much technologists and i'm emphasizing that point and i count myself as a technologist obviously focused around just the positive impacts and it's only when you actually then started to think about but what what if somebody did this that or the other and what if your personal data was used in an inappropriate way? Or what if that algorithm was kind of suggesting something that you might not want? And that people slowly started to migrate back to, oh, yeah, kind of may maybe you've got something there. Today, I think it's quite different. I, th I think when we talk about this now, it's almost as though the world's woken up in the pandemic and um, we, we often talk about the acceleration of digital transformation through the pandemic. But for me, there's also been this acceleration of... Uh, awareness of, of this need to think about consequential impacts of some of the things that are happening. Um, and whether that's talking in the context of people's well-being and health, and well-being both in terms of obviously um, we immediately think of health in the context of the pandemic, but, but, but also mental well-being as well in the context of some of the things that uh, consequential impact of use of data, for example. Um, people get it now. They might not have kind of gone to the, and this is everything that we're doing about it, space, but they get it as a need to do something different. And it's it's interesting thinking back to that time as well. So I remember you were researching, the, as you say, the track was uh, Digital Society and you, were, you launched a Digital Divide survey, I think, in 2017. And, and I remember it was quite a broad, wide-ranging survey. I remember completing it myself and, and sharing it with um, friends and, and family. Can you remind us just of what some of the conclusions were that, that came out of that survey at the time? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I still... Um, it, it was a great experience from, from our point of view. I mean, we asked, I think there were 43 questions that ranged from, have you used a mobile phone uh, through to, um, well, things that didn't even exist. Uh, uh, they, they were there as conceptual. Just asking how people felt, uh, emphasis, the emotional reaction, how people felt around uh, that particular technology or using that particular service. And I think we got um, responses from over 60 countries, uh, which, was, which was fascinating at the time. Um, 
there were two key patterns. So, in essence, I think irrespective of age, irrespective of gender, irrespective of where you were in the world, then um, the two use cases that were accelerated adoption were personal convenience, and, and the best example for this was um, uh, something like contactless payment um, in that sense, because in many countries, not all, we'll come to that probably in the conversation, in many countries that that had been adopted, it's just so convenient to use a mobile phone or contactless card, uh, you trust it um, because it's just easy. Um, so that across the piece was, um, it saves me time is, 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 is a good indicator. There are too many digital services and digital products that do not save time. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a lesson to be learned there. And the other one was health. So if it's, if it's of a health benefit, then I'm more likely to use it, more likely to adopt it. And, and one of the, I will always quote it and I will always uh, remember it. Um, irrespective of where you were in the world, irrespective of age, you were more likely uh, to be comfortable to have nanobots in your bloodstream fixing disease than you were to have an Alexa in your bedroom. And it's, and it's not about Alexa any more than anything else. It was a privacy concern versus a health benefit, because if that's what's going to fix the thing that's wrong with me, then I'm open to that. Um, so, so those were the two main things. But, I mean, there was a, a set of fascinating um, statistics that came out of it. I mean, another one that I was talking about the other day, uh, actually, was in Southeast Asia and in Africa, people were more open to the idea of AI running government, i.e. use of a technology to make fundamentally important decisions than they were in the West, as, as, as an example. Although, as I said the other day, it would be interesting to rerun that question today. Broad conclusions you reached then were around people being more comfortable with digital technology if it was offering them either a convenience benefit or a, a health benefit. I guess you, you also appreciate that it was that work that you and others conducted back then that inspired the study we've just done at Worldline into the payments digital divide, which was similar but a much more narrow focus uh, on, on how people prefer to pay and, and what's driving those preferences. So I, I really want to discuss that with you. Um, but first of all, I just want to take a moment to let people know that the next episode of Navigating Digital Payments, we will be looking at the question of, will people never have to pay for anything ever again? Which is perhaps right for me to say that's about autonomous payments and bots paying on your behalf rather than not actually having to ever hand over any money for goods or services and um, if you want to get in touch with us let us know um topics you'd like us to cover um or give us any feedback you can email in on ndp-podcast at worldline.com and of course a, a quick reminder to please uh, leave us a review and, and subscribe to the podcast so yeah coming back to this payments digital divide survey rob we we found in our study um a similar finding around convenience but it seemed that it was more that there had to be a base level of convenience before people would choose a particular payment means. But that convenience by itself, and this is quite a subtle point, wasn't enough to drive people to switch, if that makes sense. So things had to be convenient, otherwise people just wouldn't use them. 
But actually, if you're using your contactless card, you're not going to switch to a mobile wallet or QR codes for payments just because they might be a little bit more convenient. Do, do you see what I mean? They have to be convenient enough, but convenience doesn't push people to switch. I mean, how does that tie in with what you've seen? And what do you think can encourage people to adopt technology that they might not have um, chosen or wanted to use before? Um, so, so first thing, yes, it does tie in. I think there's multiple layers to it. I mean, I still, I still remember, for example, from the report, we, we, if we were talking about contactless payment, um, the report suggested just by how people felt about it that the UK was significantly greater adoption than Germany, as an example. Or indeed, Czech Republic was significantly greater than uh, Germany, which actually when you did the analysis of, well, what specific studies have been conducted, found that that was true. That, that, that reaction around how people felt about those technologies was actually embedded in kind of some of the cultural kind of pieces for whatever reason as to how people in those countries kind of had operated. In terms of the point around that you make there in terms of switching, for me, a key thing is always awareness and comfort. And indeed, if we're going back to the um, CDR principles, I mean, the first principle was always focused around trust. I mean, we, we had trust at the heart. Uh, the ethos, ethos definition had trust at the heart uh, and 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 that that criticality of an individual having that trust in that digital technology looking out for them it was it, they were going to be protected in terms of that use or indeed that brand that was providing that so if we go back to the pandemic both my uh, in-laws and my 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 mum had never used uh, online shopping uh, from a supermarket um, and of course they didn't have a choice but for us to set that up for them and in both cases, they've never gone back. It, it's, it's, they've realized that it's a massive benefit from a convenience point of view. It saves them time because they don't have to go round, go out. Somebody brings it to them. They just have to kind of do that order on the website. So I think in the conversations I've had more broadly uh, with people around, for example, digital poverty in terms of, yes, it's having access being able to do it, but it's then being inspired or shown or um, being aware of the art of the possible and how that can help you. And, and therefore, you then seeing that convenience, you seeing that time saving, you getting that repeated benefit, then over time engenders trust. Uh, and therefore, you're comfortable doing that. And I think the biggest hurdle is often, I, I, I don't know what it feels like to do it that way. And, and people on the whole are fearful of the unknown. And certainly if we kind of looked at um, the age differences in terms of how people felt about some of the uh, some of the digital technologies, there were exceptions, I, I, I hasten to add. But on the whole, it was as you would expect in terms of some of the emerging technologies, people of a younger generation were more likely to be aware and be comfortable with adopting them than older generations. Although it's it's interesting, isn't it, when you view it through the lens of generations and, and age, because I think a mild finding in our data on payments was that, you know, the preference for cash was much greater in the oldest generation, but also in younger respondents. And again, if you think, you know, 
particularly children under the age of 16, for example, cash is pretty important in their lives, even if they can have a bank account or, or a card. It's it's quite often a way that they receive income and, and a way that they spend money. So it doesn't always completely follow that the kind of the older you are, the less you you like new payment means or, or new technologies. And the younger you are, the, the more you'll, you'll prefer them, I suppose. No, and I think we've seen that across the piece in terms of it's not that simple. Um, uh, and again, previous uh, conversations and examples around, for example, for social media. I mean, just just because you are young does not mean that you are therefore a social media expert. It depends. Facebook tends to be kind of probably more our age than my kids, for example, who who won't go anywhere near it, and we're kind of far more likely to be Instagram, TikTok. So 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 there are always, always differences. Of course, the other thing around uh, payments, and and I had this conversation earlier, was if I kind of look at um, the transactions that my son does now, seventeen. He's far more comfortable with things like crypto or in-game virtual currencies or the, the concept of the metaverse and, and, and how that's likely to uh, interact in terms of from a, uh, a payment in the broadest sense in that kind of environment than clearly someone my age. Um, so, 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 so I think it comes back to that experience point. If you've experienced something... If you've understood the value it can give, then you're more likely to kind of be comfortable with adopting that set of behaviours, irrespective of whether it's payment or whether it's kind of talking about um, a, a broader digital service product or benefit. And also, I was when you were talking about COVID and the pandemic, I was thinking that my parents-in-law started using Zoom on their iPad for the first time. Uh, now they're more comfortable with that. But I've also seen it in sort of, you know, committee meetings for example where they would always have been in person but now if if we need it this is for my daughter's basketball <laughs> club you know if they need a quick meeting to discuss one point they'll just set up a zoom call for 20 minutes rather than all meeting in person once you've got the skills and once you know what it can be used for and what it is good for you're much much happier to keep using it i think but i guess with anything there's a kind of investment isn't there there's a learning a learning curve and and the first time you do it it'll be harder than than what you've known before so you you probably need some incentive to get you over that learning curve i guess if you're going to try something new and, and potentially keep using it yeah completely and and i think it always changes as well so i mean to take your zoom example earlier how many times have we sat on zoom calls uh, or teams or whatever it might be um and you're not quite sure whether somebody's paying attention and I had a conversation earlier with um, a guy who, who talked about an organization that's using VR for meetings within a business because actually what they found was they were able to better get a sense of is everybody around this meeting engaged and paying attention? And And, and again, well, most of us probably don't do that, but somebody has found a benefit in doing that and therefore they've kind of adopted that changed behavior. It's interesting as well, because from what you've mentioned, clearly some people are not motivated to use technology or find it harder or don't have access to technology. And that can then lead to what you talked about right at the start, this digital divide you know, between people that are benefiting from, from digital products and services and those who are kind of left behind. Um, but also in our, when we were looking at payments, we saw that sometimes technology could also offer the solution. And, and the example in our report was around 
you know, biometric payments, so just waving your hand over a scanner or, or facial authentication, could be something that means you know you don't have to remember a pin you don't need a mobile device it could be something that's easier for people to use and access so it could be part of the solution so have you seen that in other areas as well where sometimes technology is maybe causing a problem leading to a divide but in other cases it's actually technology is providing some of the solutions to help close the digital divide as well yeah, and I, th I think um, if I can reference another piece of uh, work that's that's happened, which which just brings it to life. So over the last couple of years, uh, the United Nations has been uh, working on um, well, they've, what they've launched recently is the Code's Global Action Plan for a Sustainable Planet in the Digital Age. And actually, when you look at the the, the, the detail of what they've talked about and delivered. Everything that was covered in the CDR kind of conversations is covered in that. So although their focus is environmental, a, clearly a kind of key part of that is also societal. Now, they talk about fun fundamentally everything that they've recommended as an action is split into three things. Uh, one, what are the enablers that you need in place? Secondly, how do you mitigate harms or, or prevent negative consequential impacts? And, and thirdly, innovating to solve the world's biggest challenges. So, so, so when we talk about digital responsibility and, and, and all the work that we've done around um, the, the kind of the digital ethics space, if you like, it's important not to see it as regulatory policy that is preventing you from doing the things that you would want to do. It is both kind of trying to ensure that there are um, fewer negative impacts, but actually it comes back to fundamentally, digital technologies and appropriate use of data and algorithms and other things that are emerging are absolutely part of the solution to all the things that we're kind of trying to do at the moment. So, so, so the kind of double, double focus around don't do nasty things and kind of do some amazing things uh, is, is key. But, but it comes back to being being mature enough to be able to think about some of the consequential impacts outside of your immediate zone of responsibility. So, as, as an example, I was talking to someone the other week uh, around digital responsibility, and they said, well, this is the product that we're defining, and we've thought carefully about what the product can do and are ensuring it does it well. And my challenge was, yes, but what are the unintended consequences that are peripheral to that, that are outside of the scope of that product? Uh, so to try and think about that side of things, but but yeah, I mean um, the the awareness, in, innovate to solve the problems, and how do you actually land that? And again, I'll go back to conversations I've had um, uh, again speaking to my my mum recently around a, a website that had introduced two-factor authentication, and and trying to kind of go through the point of, but that's a good thing, but. But actually, they'd not implemented it that well. They'd not made it easy for her to adopt and use. And, and, and therefore, yes, great to innovate, but please think about all consumers, all parts of society, in enabling them to get value from that, rather than actually putting uh, blocks in their way to kind of continue to do the things that they were used to doing. It's a really, it's a good point. I mean, authentication is a great example, actually, where I again thinking of my mum where certain types of two-factor authentication are essentially impossible for her to to be able to log in with um and it's interesting because it of course on the one hand it is 
protecting people. So it, it's there to stop you getting scammed and, and stop someone else spending your money. But then, as you say, the unintended consequence, because I'm pretty sure the intended consequence is not that people can't log into their accounts, but the unintended consequence is that some people go from being able to access a product or service to to not being able to use it anymore just because that authentication step is too difficult. So it's it's a it's a really good example. I was also reminded actually cuz I had to to go into a bank branch and this is not something I have to do very often um to make to to make a money transfer and I realized that actually you know, for many people, that's a very accessible way of, it's not very convenient for me, to be honest, to have to go to a bank branch, but it is pretty accessible. And you could also see how it would be less prone to fraud because you're going in and you're talking to someone and you have your ID and it's, you know, it's very kind of, I would find it hard to think of someone that couldn't have done that. And yet, of course, that is now not the normal way that people are doing money transfers, which I think probably most people would prefer to do online from their mobile app. I uh, certainly how I do it at the moment. And, and I think, I mean, again, if we take it back to um, CDR, um, so, so one of the key focuses around um, second principle it, it is all around... Um, diversity and inclusion, but in the product design process to, to try and focus in on how do you actually consider everybody that is likely to consume that product, that service, uh, and try to think about the impact for them of decisions that are being made. Because people are different, and, and therefore, in that case that you describe, uh, some of us are quite happy kind of doing uh, everything from a banking point of view on our phone. Some people actually want to ring. Some people want to do it in present. Somebody might be quite happy with a bot doing it automatically for them and taking that. But you can't put everybody in the same bucket as that's the only solution. You have to have a range in which you are engaging um, all aspects of society to be able to kind of gain value from that service. Now, there might then be conversations that say, ah, but certain elements of society kind of will not do that in a way that is profitable. And then you get kind of into the debates of, right, well, okay, so um, what what's appropriate and ethical in terms of the way in which you are engaging with society as a whole or the communities as a whole, um, and, and further work to do in that space, I would suggest, in the context of um, digital services and adoption. So if I... Come right back to the kind of main question I was posing at the start. Um, I am interested to get your view on, let's imagine a future where corporate digital responsibility is really on the agenda of of payments companies and, and financial institutions, and they're really paying attention to it. How is that, do you think, going to impact the way we transact and, and pay in the future? Can I cheekily answer a different question first? Because because you kept saying if. Um, and, and I just want... So, so normally when I talk about CDR, um, then there are three compelling reasons why organisations have to react, I think. First of which is reputational damage. We've, we've seen it in terms of the GDPR re- regulations and the fines. Um, we've seen the launch kind of recently of the DMA and the DSA and significantly higher fines in Europe um, for, for contravening the regulations in that context. Uh, we will expect to see things like the EU AI regs uh, 
Chinese regulations coming through, uh, US, etc., environmental regulations. So uh, organizations have to be conscious of these things that we have been talking about in the context of digital responsibility because there is a consequence, a, a significant reputational and consequential uh, financial impact. Secondly, is access to talent and people, because kind of people are looking for organisations to operate with integrity uh, and to do the right thing and to kind of have a bigger impact on a sustainable planet. And the third one is access to money and access to investment, because you will know that organisations are significantly shifted. Private equity is significantly adopting ESG, for example, as a sustainable measure. Uh, I mentioned ethos earlier uh, in Switzerland, um, so, so they've got a responsibility around uh, most of the major pension funds in Switzerland, and, and they've benchmarked organisations now around CDR. So 48 of the top Swiss businesses have got this kind of sustainable measure uh, that's now in place. So it doesn't matter whether it's called corporate digital responsibility or the work that the UN's doing or tech for good or the numerous other th initiatives that are out there. What matters is that organisations recognise the need to do something differently than they have been doing and there is a wave of pressure arising for that. Now, specifically in the context of payments, then I, I, I guess I would naturally point to, if we stick with CDR... Um, to look at the kind of different set of principles along the three circles of economic, societal and environmental, to go back to the earlier conversation, and the intersections between, to understand what clues it can give as somebody is delivering a business or a new product to the market as to what they should be thinking about. Um, and, and in a sense, what I would suggest is that every organisation might have a slightly different twist or what the prioritization of those areas is. You and I in the past have talked about things like hyper-automation and, and fraud analytics and, and therefore if we were thinking about um, use of AI or machine learning in those areas then we might want to be thinking about um, explainable, responsible AI. Uh, we might want to be aware of some of the work that's happening in the US at the moment around the uh, Software and Materials Act cause, and thinking about the component uh, recording in each of those software items. We might want to be aware of what's happening in China at the moment in terms of the seemingly giving the user ability to switch off the AI recommendation engines on any websites. Uh, it might be that um, we're going to kind of think about things like the environmental impact of crypto. So, um, because that's that's been a part of the debate around Bitcoin and, and the energy use, but I've seen an acceleration in that conversation in the last couple of months, thinking about how we measure uh, different blockchain solutions, different crypto solutions as part of, and, and, and the impact, therefore, of processing some of those payments. What's the, what's the uh, carbon impact of a payment is something that we've talked about before. Um, but therefore, how, how do you actually kind of guide people towards the most appropriate way if people want, people are thinking about the car they drive at the moment in terms of minimising the impact or the food they eat in terms of minimising the impact on the environment? So uh, surely kind of an obvious thing would be to think about what's the most environmentally friendly way to pay for something. Because, of course... It's, it's a bit like, um, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with the Sustainable Web Manifesto, which talks about the per-click carbon impact. Now, you might argue if you've got a website with three hits a month, 
that that probably doesn't matter so much. But if you've got a website with millions of hits a month, then that does matter uh, to think about the architecting, to think about the images, to think about the energy use, kind of powering the colours that you've got on your website. So surely that's relevant as well in the payment space. So I guess if I try to summarise that, I think it's important to realise that essentially corporate digital responsibility is coming. I think that's what you're saying. And you can either be proactive about it, um, which I think is what businesses should and will want to do, or essentially it's going to become mandatory as as regulators start to um, regulate around this area. But also I suppose people can hopefully look forward to products and services that are trustworthy, that they can understand, that they can have access to and so they can hopefully get the benefits that these digital products and services are bringing but with fewer of the the caveats and and the problems that that can come with them yes there's a nice bit of work that's been done in switzerland um unrelated to cdr uh, by the swiss digital initiative uh, which is doing a badging system for websites so it's 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 thinking about how do you kind of give consumer confidence in the this website is going to protect my data, is going to ensure that the service is kind of right, etc. So it's 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 playing to the heart of that trust and confidence and integrity point. And, and I think that's the point that, that we'd touch on there is um, we know it all hovers around trust. I, I mean, the, the reason you, you, you said it's kind of not such an easy thing to distill, it's not. I mean, my answer to the question around how CDR relevant to payments is, well, there's seven principles and each of those goes into kind of several subsections and each of those has probably got an angle on payments. Um, but it's important to understand how you can actually, A, make it easy for people to adopt, have a benefit for them, it's quicker, greater trust, greater protection, um, greater comfort, well-being, positively impact their lives, positively impact the broader kind of planet, etc. Doesn't matter whether things are called corporate digital responsibility or, or, as I said earlier on, it's just thinking about through those variety of lenses. I mean, in a sense, there's a financial benefit, isn't there? If you kind of deliver a solution that is easy to use, easier than anybody else's to use, that has less energy use than anybody else's that uses data in a more ethical and appropriate way than anybody else's then 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 surely that's going to be more broadly adopted by people than something that is more complex to use uses loads of energy and therefore kind of is more expensive i mean i know i'm stating the obvious but in a sense that's what this stuff is it's it's there was a brilliant um quote that I, I had from um, an organization I was working with last year who responded to uh, working around the digital responsibility area um, by saying that was quite an emotional experience. And the point was, it's about awareness and opening your eyes to what could be done differently if you put each of the citizen or the consumer, society as a whole, and the planet at the heart of the thought process. Because if you're hitting each of those in terms of a positive impact, chances are your product will kind of continue to kind of grow. Because as I said earlier, two and a bit years into the pandemic, people get the need for change. If I go back then and, and think about what we've covered, it's been 
quite intensive. So you, first of all, were good enough to explain what corporate digital responsibility is and also share, I guess, some of the, the heritage and where it came from and also the work you did on, on the digital divide and what some of the conclusions were from that. We then talked a little bit more about payments and the convenience factor and what can persuade people to adopt or not adopt particular new technology solutions. Um, and then finally, I think, as you said there, doing things in a, a sustainable ethical way should also translate to good business outcomes but i also think one of the um maybe one of the simplest shortest uh, answers you gave was earlier where you also said that um it's about making sure you don't do the bad stuff you reduce the negative impacts and you do some really really great stuff as well <laughs> and I, I think that kind of captures it uh, really succinctly so rob i really it's been a pleasure time has flown by really want to thank you for joining us on the podcast it's been a pleasure david as always and of course last of all just want to thank you the listener for joining us today as we navigate digital payments Thank you for listening to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline. Join us next time to learn more about the latest innovations, trends and predictions for the future of payments.